Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Welcome to episode 36 of the Stay Grounded podcast. Hope you're all having an incredible day. Uh, Man, this is actually one of my most exciting intros that uh, I've done in a while because the person who you're going to get to listen to today is... uh, one of the most inspiring people I've ever had the pleasure of having a conversation with, Mr. Charlie Engel. So Charlie is a writer, runner, uh, recovering addict, and a keynote speaker. In his own words, he's an addict who runs, and he's a runner who writes. Uh, in the past several years, Charlie has accomplished some of the most improbable, seemingly impossible feats on the planet. Uh, he was a crack addict who saved himself through ultra running and became an adventure film star known around the world. Um, he was the first man to ever run across the Sahara Desert. Uh, in 2007, him and two other ultra runners covered 45 miles a day for 111 days straight to cross the Sahara. Uh, this was documented on a film that was narrated and, and produced by Matt Damon. Uh, and in conjunction with that, Charlie actually started the nonprofit H2O Africa, which is now water.org. So if you guys have heard of that project, uh, this is the man behind it. So, uh, Charlie is a, just, I mean, that alone inspired me just that, how do you push yourself to a limit where you can run across and, and just take on that level of, of physical exhaust, but to him, uh, his, it, it the way you'll hear about it in the episode, but his entire life has been about overcoming struggle and pain, especially from overcoming addiction. And then uh, there was another part of his life where he was sent to federal prison. And so it's, it's an inspiring story of hope. It's an inspiring story of a man who just will not give up. (laughs) And I took so much away from this conversation and I hope you guys too, because Charlie is the real deal. He's working on an incredible new project uh, to a multi-sport 5,000 mile expedition from the lowest point on earth to the highest point on earth, which is the Red Sea in Israel to the top of Mount Everest. And so, I mean, he's just always looking for the next most incredible feat to go after. And he's got such a zest for life that I think is infectious and you guys are going to catch it in the episode. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Um, But before we get started, if you haven't already, please rate, rewrite, uh, review, subscribe, get involved with the Stay Grounded podcast, however you choose to do so, and let us know what you think. But without further ado, I am extremely proud to introduce this week's guest, Charlie Engel. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Stay Grounded Podcast. I'm your host, Raj, and I am sitting here uh, with a new friend of mine. Hey, Charlie. 
Hey, what's going on, dude? I'm awesome, man. How are you? I'm doing, couldn't be doing any better right now, actually. So things are good. That makes me happy. Uh, so definitely I already talked up Charlie in the intro, so I'm not going to spend too much time talking here. But uh, Charlie, I, I, I want to start by just asking you, um, can you, can you share with us and the listeners why you started running and why you picked running? as 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 your outlet versus any other thing you could have picked oh man yeah that's a great question i i I, my running life is sort of divided in a couple of different pieces and when i was in in high school i was a high school runner and a and a pretty good one uh you know won some races and a, a couple of championships and those kinds of things and the half mile and the mile and then I went to college and like so many college students, you know, I got a little distracted. <laughs> so running definitely was not a, uh, you know, not an everyday habit of mine. I, I tried to exercise some, but I, you know, I fell into a pretty serious drug problem and, you know, this problem persisted after, after college. And it took me until I was, you know, 29 years old before, I was able to get a handle on that and finally make a, a change in my life. And uh, once I quit drinking and doing drugs, I turned immediately to running as as one of the things. I, I started going to you know recovery meetings and to uh, you know to run every single day. And I did that like for three solid years without taking a single day off after I got sober and and I became a runner and during that three years you know I ended up running like you know 30 marathons yeah you know I always say because obviously I had that uh that whole addiction thing under control right because <laughs> <laughs> 30 marathons is just normal yeah uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding but uh you know but I did I I running helped me that's when I really got it. It's not even the running. It was just that it, it changed my perspective. And I, I just learned that I could actually get through most anything. And running was kind of a metaphor for me. You know, if I could, if I could make it to the start line and I could just get out there and, and do my best, I would always get a reward at the end, you know, an emotional reward. A, I mean, they weren't monetary awards. They were just, they started to turn me into a whole human being. And I, I think that's what running did for me. I'm always, and I'm, what I'm most fascinated by you is that you've, you've, you've almost trained yourself to, to want that reward or, or that emotional reward at the end of, of anything. Right. So, I mean, you've run some incredible feats. You've done some incredible feats um, after all these ultra marathons and ultra running and these things that seem like humanely impossible like what motivates you to, to want that? Like, is the, is the reward at the end really that sweet? Um, and, and yes. yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> question, but like you put yourself through a lot of, of, of struggle to, to experience that. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, and it, and it is, I mean, some of it is just life experience and I point out to people all the time that if you ask most anyone, I don't care what age you are, you know, you're a lot younger than I am. But if I ask you, what are the things in your life that have been the most formative? You know, what are the things that have happened to you that have helped you become the person that you are? Are you going to tell me, 
all the things that were super easy and how life was just simple and you never had any problems? Or are you going to say, you know, you're, you're probably going to list off a handful of challenges, the challenges that you faced and the things that you overcame. So if you just take that idea and expand it out, what I learned through a lot of years of addiction and a lot of years of doing really hard running and adventure races is that the emotional, the, the confidence rewards, the uh, just all of the growth that I got out of putting myself purposely into a challenging situation, uh, it always brings something new. I learn something new about myself, about the planet, about the people that I'm sharing the experience with. Um, you know, hardship is really what makes us who we are. It, it, you know, it's easy to be an optimist when everything's going great, but who are you when things are really difficult? Mm-hmm. And so I choose to put myself in those dis- difficult situations, knowing that something positive will come out of it in the end. You know, even, even if it's just the realization that I never want to do that event again. (laughs) (laughs) What are the similarities between running across the Sahara desert and, and overcoming something like addiction or going through a tough time in, in, or another similar tough time in your life? Like what are the similarities Mm. between all of these hardships? Man, such a great question. And I, I, you know, I try to go with my first instinct. And so what popped into my head, and I I tend to listen to that, is the mantra that everybody understands and has heard a million times. And that's, you know, the one day at a time mantra, or one step at a time. And to put that in context, you know, in the Sahara, when I tell my story, I, I love to talk about the first 10 days of the expedition, because I had spent two years planning this thing. You know, Matt Damon is the narrator of the film. He's executive producer. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on me to make this thing happen successfully. And like 10 days into it, we have totally fallen apart. Like we've got lost. We've run out of food and water. We've had fights. We've, you know, we're at a really, really low place. We've had a lot of injuries. And it it basically seemed like, the expedition was going to end very early. And it was at that point that I realized that I needed to approach the run the same way that I approached sobriety. And so the next day I got up and all I focused on that, that morning was running a marathon, you know, that morning, that's my only focus and get to lunch is what I always used to say, have my lunch, take a little break, get up and run a second marathon in the afternoon and focus entirely on that and get myself to the evening and then, you know, get up and do it again the next day. And that is really the point. I had spent a lot of time working towards the goal of completion when in fact the goal should have been for me every single day getting out there and just focusing on what was right in front of me. So a lot of people in early sobriety have a bad habit of saying, oh my gosh, I just, I can't, I don't even like to think about like never having another beer. Well, you don't, I don't, I don't have to like not have another beer ever in my life. I only have to not have a beer today. Mm. (laughs) Like, so it is this, it is this idea that we spend a whole lot of time worrying about things that are 
are in the future out of our control. And what we should be focusing on is exactly what's right in front of us. And in the Sahara, slowly but surely, we started to put together one good day after the next. And before we knew it, we had crossed you know, Mali and Niger, and we'd gotten into Libya and Egypt. And ironically, once we did finally finish, which, you know, was the goal to begin with, uh, instead of like joy and, and all of that, we really felt, uh, I found that I, my overwhelming feeling was sadness Mm -hmm. because I recognized right away that, that it was over. And like, I was never going to go get to go back and like experience those same things. And, you know, again, not to be too cliche, but it really is the journey. And like that journey is what I remember way more than I remember being done with it. And so do you feel like every other adventure you've put yourself through in your life is to experience a different version of the journey? A hundred percent. You just said it very well. And it's why I'm always looking for something different. It's not that I'm, you know, it's not that I get bored with what I'm doing, but like I ran a lot of marathons and finally I got to a place where, you know, I was towing the line of another start line of a marathon. And I'm, I realized there is, I'm not worried about anything. Like I know I'm going to finish this race. I mean, you know, depending on how fast within a couple of minutes, this is what I'm going to do. And I actually missed that feeling of not knowing what was coming. You know, it's, it's my belief very much that, you know, we all to some degree or another, we spend our lives change chasing first experiences you know, because you, you do, you only get to do that once. And I, I always like to remind people, if you're just entering a new event, don't dread it, like find a way to soak it in, no matter how hard it might be. If you're starting a business, you're, you're starting a family, you're just dating someone new and it's a first date. You know, we, we tend to focus on the anxiety of it instead of the, the beauty of the fact that you're, you getting the opportunity to have this brand new, like it's nothing but possibilities, you know, and, and it may turn out terrible. (laughs) Might be the worst date ever, might be the worst race ever, might be the worst job ever, but it's another step along that path of finding the thing that's exactly what you want to be doing. And that's such a powerful concept because it's almost like a framework for just approaching different things in your life. It's just a way yeah. of life. Now, let me ask you this, as, as far as struggle goes, because uh, I don't think I know anybody on the planet who's just got a more well-rounded view on struggle as, as you do. How do you think struggle and self-care uh, go hand in hand? Because a lot of people, they run from struggle, but to me, it seems like you're using struggle as a way to take care of yourself. Yeah. No, it's a great way to look at it. And, and, and look, I, I freely admit that I still have a lot of work to do, though. You know? yeah. And I think that's the other part of it is I don't have all the answers. And I certainly don't have answers for other people. I can, I can say how I've done something, but I have no idea how someone else might do it. Maybe they'll take some cues from what I've done. But I think a good example, uh, Early on in my relationship with my wife, uh, we've, we've been married going on five years and uh, we'd both been married once before. And so, you know, we'd, we had some experience in life and 
And, uh, uh, you know, I was, we're sitting at dinner and I'm telling her my stuff and she's telling me hers and, you know, we all have our stuff and, and, uh, challenges and positives and all this. And, and she looked at me and just, just basically said, uh, acknowledge the fact that I had a, I had a good handle on like surviving difficult things yeah. and that, uh, you know, if things went badly, uh, you, you definitely want me on your side. <laughs> but then she looked at me and was like, you know, but, but like, do you have any idea how to actually just be happy? Like when things are okay. And, you know, my, I was pretty speechless, which is unusual for me, as you know. And because of the reality was I really didn't know how to be happy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with hardship because I understand the value of hardship and hard lessons and, and the way that it can help you grow. But like for me, one of my challenges these days is to find a way to actually be, if not content, at least happy. And even if that happiness is in moments and it's not that I'm unhappy, it's just that I, like I'm, I'm a little more comfortable in chaos and in challenges in the midst of challenges than I am uh, when things are just kind of okay. And, you know, so I think it's, it's important for all of us to, to find balance. I like to say, and especially to people, you know, your age, you know, comfort is overrated. (laughs) You know, we, we tend to, when we're young, especially look at, you know, many of our goals are wrapped up in things that will make our lives more comfortable. And that doesn't necessarily just mean money. It just means whatever, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, we all don't crave a certain amount of comfort, but comfort as a goal is very unfulfilling. Mm. Comfort as a side effect of your passion and, you know, I mean, all things being equal, you know, I would rather have money than not have it, but not at the sacrifice of the things that I feel most passionate about, of living the kind of life that I want to live. Because I know I'm not going to be sitting around when I'm 90, uh, you know, talking about the money I made. I'm going to be talking about the people I've met, the, the places on this planet that I've visited, um, hopefully some of the positive things I've done and maybe some of the people that I've been able to help and, you know, that's what we talk about. So those are the things that, that should be the actual goals for us, in my opinion. Why do you think it's so hard for people to live with passion? (laughs) I think it's incredibly complicated these days. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, everything from social media to even mainstream and traditional media. And we, we are so bombarded with other people's lives. You know, we're constantly exposed to, uh, to basically um, not a very clear view of what other people's lives actually look like. Because when you boil it down, every single person struggles. I don't, I don't know a person that doesn't struggle. And if they say that they don't have any struggles, then they're either an incredibly boring person who's just simply not doing anything uh, with their lives or for anyone else, or they're not telling the truth, (laughs) which is the more likely answer, you know? And it's, it's, I I think that this, yeah, the struggle for, 
for everyone is we, I like to say we compare our insides to other people's outsides. We compare, I compare how I feel to how you look mm. because I don't, I don't yeah. get to see the down. I don't get to see the down moments in your life. You know, I don't get to see those things. You know, what, what, when, when you interact with most people, even your closest friends very often, you know, you, you kind of get a sanitized version of what's going on. And most of us, if you're self-aware, tend to kind of wonder, man, how come, you know, why don't I feel like that? (laughs) So as an, as an addict, I felt that way all the time back in my twenties, you know, I would, I ran my first marathons, you know, while I was still very much an active addict and, you know, I'd finish a marathon I'd be looking at everybody else and they're, they're crying and hugging and they're, you know, just seem to have this joy, which I'm sure they did have. And I didn't have any of that. I didn't feel that. And so I, I thought I was just, you know, broken, but again, it's because I was comparing, you know, how I really felt inside to what I was seeing from them. And you can never know what's real and what's not, you know, and that's not really the point. You can only know yourself and if we're lucky, know ourselves. And so I think that that has a lot to do with it. I think that we just, you know, we, if we all got a chance to spend, you know, a few weeks or a month, you know, totally by ourselves (laughs) with ourselves, most of us couldn't do it. Yep. We, we wouldn't know what to compare. We wouldn't know how to measure success. We wouldn't know how to gauge ourselves because we kind of gauge ourselves as a mirror of what's being reflected from society, not, not as a mirror on ourselves. How is, how is going through addiction and overcoming addiction, how has that helped you shape your definition of success? Yeah, it keeps it in perspective. I can tell you that. So for me, <clears throat> overcoming addiction, and and I should also be I, I, not to be argue semantics, but I'm still an addict. Yeah. You know, I'm twenty. I'm twenty six years clean and sober, <laughs> almost. Assuming I make it like two more weeks, um, <laughs> you know, I'll have twenty six years. And um, so measuring success for me is finding a way to. It's finding a way to be okay with unresolved conflicts, all right? Like, that's the best way I can put it because almost nothing, and you've, you're a business person, you know, you, you're active, you have, I'm sure you've had, I don't, I don't know all your story, but I'm sure you've had setbacks, you've had things that have, like, taken you to your knees, and yeah. then you've had wins, and there's a whole lot of time spent in between yeah. where you're just sort of like, yeah, that was okay, wasn't as good as I wanted. And it's, it's, it never ends. Like there's never a time when anybody that I've ever known has said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I've got it. It's over. I figured it all out because one experience just leads to more questions. And as a recovering addict, it's taken me a long time, a lot of years to figure out that, um, I just have to be okay with unresolved conflict because there's going to be a lot of things in my life that just aren't resolved. You know, I just have to keep moving forward. I I like to say that, you know, continuous forward movement pretty much always wins the day. You know, you don't, you don't have to be awesome all the time. You just have to not give up 
you just have to keep moving forward. And the most hopeless days as an addict and, and beyond for me, you know, usually mean that I just need to go to bed and get a good night's sleep and, and try to get up the next day and get after it again. So when you, uh, I think, I, I think there's something really powerful there because I've always felt like whenever I feel like I'm past the pain, it's like, I want to feel comfortable and I want to feel that, but it's for me, I've always felt like it's just safer to be a hard ass or it's safer to like, just be in that almost like that war, like a warm mentality. So how do you, how do you balance that with actually like enjoying the fruits of, of, of life and, 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 and at the same time expecting life to be hard, like that almost seems contradictory to me. Yeah. Well, you know, what you pointed out was, um, man, it's a really good point because I, and I think the only way to do it is to find a way to trust people, you know, and find a way to trust, you know, the universe that you're not going to get screwed, that not everybody is out there to get one over on you. And, you know, I mean, you know, my story, you know, I've had a lot of things happen to me. And again, some of them were things that I did to myself and others were things that, you know, were done to me, you know, I've had, I've had the myriad, uh, the whole gambit, you know, business partners who've stolen from me. I've had, uh, you know, people that have cheated in one way or another on me. I've had, you know, I've had all the normal human things that, that happen. And so it's the easiest thing you can do, or it seems easiest is to shut down and to close yourself off to the world and just be safe and never let anybody in. But what good does that do? I mean, it doesn't, that's not a life to me. You know, for me, I still go out there and sure, I try to be, I try to be smart, you know, protect myself when I, when it feels necessary. But otherwise, uh, I think that trusting other people with, um, you know, with information, whether it's personal information about me, you know, I've, there's an old saying in AA that that uh, goes essentially that you're only as sick as your secrets, and you know what that means is we've all got stuff. <laughs> we've all got stuff, and I'm not saying you air your deepest, darkest secrets, you know, to strangers out, you know, on a public forum. But like, like most of the time, and I can only speak for you know in the recovery world you know, the vast, there's a lot of shame that's involved in the things that go along with being an addict, you know, or being human, quite frankly, you know, almost all of us carry around some things that we're ashamed of behaviors that we've done, you know, specific things that we've done, whatever things that we know deep down in our heart that we didn't, we didn't do the, we didn't do well in someone else's on someone else's behalf or, or on our own and and we carry that stuff around with us and you you have to find a way to resolve those things because they don't go away yeah. they just they just sit there how do you um you've been through a lot how what is the most important lesson you've learned that sort of reinforces your own philosophy on life um from any of the myriad of of hardships you've whether intentionally or unwillingly put yourself through yeah 
I mean, the simplest answer that I can give you is it just doesn't matter what happens to us. It only matters what you do about it. Like literally, it does not matter. You cannot give me an example short of, you know, the, the only, you know, obviously you can't do anything about, you know, dying. So short of, of something like that, you know, you, you get a chance to respond in some way to every single thing that ever happens to you. And so figuring out who you are and how you're going to respond to good things and to bad things, you know, not being cocky and a, and a jerk when you win the lottery and also not, you know, <laughs> not spending a month down in the dumps when, you know, you lose your job. I mean, you find a way to respond to challenges in a way that uh, allows you to continue moving forward. I think that that's a, it's a great skill to have. And I don't know. I think the other big thing is to, to remember, I, I tell people all the time when they're training for a race, like they, they want to like, you know, they want six months or a year to get ready for this event and they want their training to be perfect. And they want these things. And I'm like, why, <laughs> why do you want that stuff? You know, because you're going to have, if you go out and try to do that, you know, next weekend, instead of a year from now, you know, you're going to have an experience and you're going to learn some lessons and nobody is looking at you anyway. Mm. You know, we, we, we all kind of think that, you know, whatever we do is going to be judged by, you know, by everyone else as if we're that important. And That's I think, a good point. I think most of the time, you know, if we, if we take a moment and sort of realize not that people don't love us and care about us, but, it's complicated, man. It's complicated. Yeah. And the only person, nobody can care more about you than you do. And, and I think that uh, that realization has freed me up to, you know, try not to worry too much about what other people think. You know, I, I'm, I'm a fairly public person and uh, public about my sobriety. I'm public about some of the challenges that I've faced in my life. And, you know, People read two lines or they hear one sound bite and they think they know you and, and they want to, you know, they're going to pass judgment. And I just, I've learned, it took me a long time, but I've learned, you know, just simply to not worry about those things. Yeah. Man, Charlie, um, that was such a powerful thing for me to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that's something I definitely sometimes battle a lot in my own internal dialogue. Um, I do want to ask you though, so you've got a new project coming up your, your dead sea to the top of Everest. Um, what's motivating you to do this, uh, this trip in this time at, and, and, and with this, the amount of preparation you're putting in, like, I mean, just like, what's, what's driving everything, man, my dead sea to Everest project is one that's actually been bouncing around my head for about eight years now. So, wow. okay. Yeah. It's been a long time coming and I've, you know, it's a great example of, you know, sometimes the universe doesn't align on things and you just have to put it on a shelf. And I, I don't believe in, in taking things, if you can help it, and just throwing them away and, and, and putting them on the shelf forever. You know, the time will present itself for most ideas in your life. And in the past, there have been times when I was so determined and forceful that I was, I was just simply going to make something happen no matter what. 
and it turned out to be a mistake because it wasn't it wasn't the right time. Yeah. So with Dead Sea to Everest, I've worked really hard and I've I've put a lot of pieces in place. And what I love about the project is the metaphor uh, of lowest to highest. And we're you know we all basically fight this exact same battle on a daily basis in our lives. <laughs> you know, maybe not every single day, but but. 98% of life is kind of lived for all of us in this general middle ground. Yeah. Things aren't terrible. Things aren't awesome. It's just life. You know, you're moving along. And then there's these like spikes of incredible things, you know, big life events that happen. And then there's really terrible lows that happen. Um, you know, death, loss, disease, whatever it might be mental illness, depression, I mean, PTSD, the things that happen to people in normal life that, that, that knock them down. And it's figuring out how to survive that 2%, mm. you know, don't get too high, you know, don't, don't take your wins and think that you're going to feel that way forever. Enjoy that moment, but recognize, you know, things are going to, for most people, things are going to return to normal. And Dead Sea to Everest is a way to sort of put put meat on those bones and to, to exemplify this, this struggle. The other thing that it does is I am a, uh, you know, I am a person that cares about the planet and, uh, also recognizes that business has to be done too. But, yeah. uh, I, I really call the project 5.8. And the reason that I call it 5.8 is that it's 5.8 vertical miles from <laughs> the Dead Sea to the top of Everest. Wow. Like, like that's it. So we all, every human on this planet lives in this little tiny sliver of space that's only 5.8 miles, you know, wide. And in fact, you know, not accounting for, you know, for Everest and high altitude, we, we probably live more like in one mile. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, 5.8 miles is where every human being lives. And, and if you take a, I was like this visual, if you take a basketball and you dunk it in a bucket of water and you pull it out, like we live in that little watery sheen that's on the outside of the basketball, yet there doesn't seem to be very much urgency to find a way to take care of that. Mm. And, you know, when, when all signs, not just from scientists, but our, our own eyes <laughs> can see what's going on around us and you know, when you see things changing on the, on the planet, uh, you know, I'm hoping, look, my wife encourages me. She is a, um, she's a wildlife biologist and, and she spent more time outside than I have. And she encourages me to not focus on the negative And I agree with her. So I don't want this expedition to be about, you know, me running across the planet going, look at all these things we've destroyed. You know, instead, I want it to be like, look at this beauty. Look at this amazing place that we live and all these experiences that there are out here to have. And, you know, doesn't matter which side of things you're on. You know, we, we should all agree that we need to do a good job of being uh, good stewards for the planet. Absolutely. One thing I find really fascinating about uh, kind of the way you think is like, it sounds like, like when you were like right now, you just, you kind of reframed 
a trip from the lowest point on earth, to the highest point on earth to that five point, you know, like that, that number that doesn't seem that crazy anymore. And then when you're talking about the, the Saharan desert, you, you, you talked about just running a marathon till lunch and then running a marathon in the evening. How do you reframe all these challenges that just come before you to make them seem manageable? Is there a practice that you do or is that just experience? That's a, that's a great question. I, I think it's become innate <laughs> with me. And I, and I do think that some of it is that um, I have recognized that, you know, anything can be made. I said this earlier, but one of, I'll give it a different frame of reference to like one of my, my heroes is a guy named Ernest Shackleton. If you know Shackleton's story of the endurance and he was an explorer back in the early 1900s and so very famous guy you know trying to make it to antarctica and um his ship gets caught and this there's been films and lots of books but his ship gets caught in uh, ice in an ice blow and basically he's got 26 men and they get trapped for 22 months with you know without food without shelter the ice actually crushes their ship and they have to walk across land and they they drag a rowboat that you know ultimately they end up being saved and unbelievably you know all 26 men survived and my favorite saying in the world is ernest shackleton said um, optimism is true moral courage mm. And, and his point, which is very clear, is just that, uh, again, anyone can be optimistic when everything is going your way. But who are you when absolutely everything falls apart? And maybe to take it another step, does it actually help you to, yes, we all wallow in our crap sometimes. You know, there are plenty of days where something will happen to me and for whether it's for a minute or an hour or even a day, I might mope around. So don't get the idea that that never happens to me. <laughs> my, wife, my wife will tell you it does happen, you know, but the vast majority of the time I am able to take it, flip it on its head, kind of reframe the idea and look at it as an opportunity and just say, you know, either that wasn't meant to be or I need to come up with a new idea, or, and Dead Sea to Everest, I'll, I'll give you a good example, you know, where I am right now. There's been some major production companies that have been involved in this project over the last year and a half, you know, from National Geographic and Discovery and Red Bull and a lot of other, you know, big names. And, um, and generally speaking, it's a very expensive project. And, and what's ended up happening is that uh, you know, these big, uh, these big outlets have had a struggle with, you know, the budget and, and even with the story at times and the, just the scope of it. So my point being that I've had a few disappointments. I've heard a lot of no's. I've heard a lot of incredible, Oh my God, we love this. And, you know, we want to do it and there's all of that. And then, you know, just like in any business, you, you get yes, 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 and then you get a no. And like, so what happens when you get the no after getting so much positive feedback? Like, how yeah. do you recover from that? It's hard. And, <laughs> you know, 
And that's something that I have to work on all the time, you know, because I know when I'm pitching big ideas or when I'm trying to do something that's really difficult, I know for sure that I'm going to hear no a lot of times. Almost like you, you condition yourself to, to, to be all right with the no in a way where it's just like, and that's like, I think that's right. That's, it's a muscle that you're building. Yeah. You're building the, the resilience inside you. Resilience is a muscle. Um, Absolutely. Like everything else. And yeah, hundred percent, man, you, you, you gotta work, you gotta work on it. You can't let it freak you out. You know, you gotta, you gotta see it as, as an opportunity to keep, to keep growing. And, you know, it may not be what you want to hear, but, uh, you know, but sometimes that's just the path you have to take. It's, it's, you never know when you're going to hear the next, a good idea that's going to change your life. And so you, you, you know, you need to be paying attention. Let me ask you this. Uh, it's easy to be resilient when, or not easy, but when you're personally going through things, that's one form of resiliency. Mm-hmm. What about when you see your loved ones go through pain or when you see your loved ones or the people you care about go through something, how does resiliency play into that scenario? Is it different than personal pain? And, and what are your perspectives on that? Absolutely. It's different. You know, I would, you know, I, I've shared with you that my wife has been going through a really difficult time with her, with a physical injury that she suffered a while back. And, you know, she knows that I'm sincere in saying, and it's not a heroic thing, but if I could, if I could take it from her and carry it around for a while myself, yeah, you know, she knows I would do it. And I, I think that it, it does boil down to, you know, compassion, right? I mean, compassion is the, I think, most important word in the universe. You know, there's no more important word because we so often, uh, I think most of us feel compassion for the people closest to us, but feeling compassion for oneself is really difficult. Feeling compassion for strangers can sometimes be difficult. And I, and I think that, um, watching a loved one there's absolutely nothing harder than watching a loved one suffer and i'll take this a step farther my own son my oldest son um has had uh he's had an addiction problem himself even though he grew up in a sober household it's been a struggle for him and there's nothing i could do about it you know you can't he's no different than all the other addicts in my life in the sense that I can't stop him any more than I can stop a stranger. You know, there's no more, uh, there's just nothing else I can do. You know, I have to let him know that I love him, that I'm there for him, that I will do anything to help him. But he's, he's got to take the first step to change his own life. Nobody else can do that for you. So, so then what do you do? Like, what is your role? I guess, like from a resilience standpoint, right? Like, Cause you work, we work so hard. Really the only thing that we can control is ourselves. We can't control what happens to us. We can't control what happens to other people. We can't control that first step, but how do you, how, what's the best way you can show up uh, to, to almost like develop and build like, cause that is hard. Like when you have loved ones going through like pain, how do you build up a tolerance to that um, or, or show up in a way that eases the pain? You know, it, you just hit it on the head with your last sentence there, you know, show up for it, um, be there for them, you know, you, but the most 
important thing, and and I can I can frame it in in addiction because look, every single person that's listening to this podcast, every single person is fits into a couple of categories. They either are an addict, they know an addict, <laughs> they have a family member who's an addict, they have a friend who's an addict or alcoholic. I mean, you you cannot be a human being, certainly not in this country, and escape knowing people who suffer from alcoholism and addiction. It's just not possible. Yeah. So you have a choice. You can certainly be compassionate, as you should be. It's hard not to be judgmental. Usually the first thing that happens is, you know, we give that person a very hard time because we, we think that tough love is going to solve it, and it rarely does. So you have to find a way in your own heart to let that person know. And the same is true. I don't care if it's running, if it's business, if it's whatever it is, you know, you got to let somebody know that you're, you know, you support them and you care for them, but you don't agree with the way they're going about it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and, and they, especially when it comes to addiction, enabling is the other big problem, you know, because a, a parent wants to bail the kid out time after time after time, because of course, you know, you, you, you want to save them, but you, you know, very often you just can't do that. You know, people do have to find their own path and learn their own lessons. And I think that, you know, I think that running, running for me, running hundred milers, running crazy long distances and doing difficult things have taught me that I am the only, it doesn't matter how much support I have, how many people that are out there helping me, they can't run for me. Yeah. <laughs> I got to do that part myself and I want to do it myself. You know, that's, that's what I need. I need to, when I enter something really difficult, I actually want to reach that point where I want to quit. And then I want to find a way to get past it because that's why I'm there. I'm not there to have an easy experience. I'm not on this planet to have an easy experience. I'm here to do as many things as I can, suffer the consequences sometimes, the rewards sometimes. Um, you know, sometimes it's just kind of a mixed bag and you don't really know whether you won or lost <laughs> and, you know, and then move on to the next thing. You know, I, there's, I've been to probably 40 or more countries that I've raced in. I've done some cool stuff around the world, but you know what, that still leaves me about 70% of the world that I still need to see, yep. you know, I got more stuff to do. And I think that having a broad perspective allows us to help ourselves and to help the people closest to us. I love that. Charlie, you are absolute rock star, man. Um, I am rooting for you. I can't wait to see your project come out. I, I just, I'm so excited for you. Um, but yeah, no guys, I have one last question. Like everybody knows, okay. um, Charlie. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the fun part. Um, in the midst of everything you've been through, from from overcoming addiction to to taking on these huge projects to, to experiencing highs and lows, how do you stay grounded on a daily basis? That is, I should have seen that one coming. You should have seen I? it coming. So, right. That's your it. fault. That's your fault. So I know. <laughs> stay grounded. So... 
how do I stay grounded? Well, first of all, um, I surround myself with people that help me stay grounded because I think that, you know, having someone that loves you in your life and being able to freely give love without feeling concerned is, is a way to be grounded and reminded that, uh, uh, that's what's really important. All these big projects that I work on and all of these things are, they're not distractions. They are important, but I think staying, staying grounded uh, is an art form almost. And I, and I will say, because it would be, uh, I need to do a better job of it, but I was just speaking today again about meditation and the role that it has played in my life and um, doing, uh, taking a few minutes for oneself. And I, like it, like so many people, I have a bad habit of starting my day with my phone, my smartphone in my hand. Yeah. And I need to do a better job, I know, of detaching from that, you know, more, more often so that I can stay grounded and not out there in the, in the bigger world. Oh, man. Well, I, like I said, I'm, I'm a huge fan, Charlie. Um, Same here. I appreciate you sharing. I'm glad you're a huge fan of yourself. <laughs> yeah. Same here. I'm a big fan of myself. No, no, no. Love it. Of I love you. It. No, no, I love it. I love it. Um, again, man, I just wanted to thank you for being on the My show. My pleasure. Um, if, if anybody wanted to, to find more, uh, find out more about your new project, support you, get in touch with you, how do we do that? Yeah, it's all simple. One-stop shopping. It's charlieengel.com. And all my social media handles are on there. My website but also my email and phone number, like they're, they're direct to me. And so if it's about addiction, if it's about running and adventure, if it's about life, if it's about coffee, I love talking about that, then uh, reach out. Anybody can get to me. Fantastic. Well, Charlie, I want to thank you again for sharing everything you've shared and super excited for you. Uh, But everybody, that is a wrap for this episode of the Stay Grounded podcast. I'm your host, Raj. This is your friend, Charlie. And from us, stay grounded. Until next time. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of the Stay Grounded podcast brought to you by Java Press Coffee Company. My name is Raj. And I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to make daily happiness a priority. If you're interested in learning more about how your morning coffee can turn into a consistent source of joy in your life, visit www.javapress.com to learn how our products can help you do that and use the coupon code podcast for 10% off your purchase. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.